Hello and welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May and I'm here without Paul and Tony on this occasion to present a relatively short medley of some of our favourite clips from interviews we've conducted with a clever and talented gentleman who brought you Gottlieb classics such as Qbert, Mad Planets and Krull. Of course, no discussion about Gottlieb's Golden Age titles would be complete without mention of the late great Khan Yabamoto and Tim Skelly. So to that end, I've been mindful to include a few relevant anecdotes. As always, thank you for listening. You can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Support us at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash tdepodcast. And hopefully join us for the next brand new episode, which should land a week or two before Christmas. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. To kick us off, there's no better place to start than our very first episode from April 2020, when we sat down with a programmer of Qbert, the avuncular Warren Davis. Welcome to the podcast, Warren. I want to start by uh, taking you back to when you were a lot younger, when you did a course in improvisational comedy. Um, is improv comedy a good preparation for game design? You know, um, improv comedy is is a good preparation for literally anything in life. Uh, it's uh, and and when I was learning improv, there were many people taking classes who were not, uh, you know, whose goal was not to be an improv comedy performer. There were uh, creative types there, writers. A lot of writers uh, would take improv. Uh, some actors who just use wanted to use it as a tool to free themselves up in some way. But I think improv offers a lot to anyone um, just for life because it sort of teaches you a few things like uh, how to be in the moment and just be present in the current moment. And how to, it also teaches you how to listen and really take in what other people are giving you. Because um, improvisation on stage is all about uh, taking cues from the other people. It's not about imposing your will. It's supposed to be about you uh, hearing what the other people are saying. And, you, you know, there's this phrase, yes, and. Uh, and that's what improv is about. You say, yes, and. So you take in what you hear and you add to it. Can you talk to us about Khan Yabamoto, the late Khan Yabamoto? Sure, sure, absolutely. He um, uh, he was there before me, and you know he was uh, yeah. I think he took a more of a scientific approach to game design. I think uh, Mad Planet sort of came out of that. He was really interested in the physics of things, um, but he was working on. I mean, I mean, the inspiration for Kubert basically came from seeing him working on a screen that was supplied to him by Jeff, uh, which was Escher cubes that filled the screen. And um, he was doing something where he was sort of, because um, we had a switch in our hardware that let you flip the foreground and background planes. And he was working on something where he flipped the foreground and background planes and sort of like was removing pieces of the background to reveal the foreground behind it. But what he was using for his background was this screen that was just sort of filled with this Escher illusion of cubes. And when I saw that, 
in my mind, I imagined this as a pyramid because if if a ball, let's say, or some object were to fall onto a cube, it would have one of two ways to bounce. And that's binary and programmers like binary stuff. And anyway, so, you know, um, if you carved a pyramid out of it and a ball fell on the top, you know, you'd have a random path that would take it to the bottom. Anyway, that's where the pyramid came from. So Khan was, you know, and Jeff both were instrumental in that sort of piece of fortuitous uh, happening. It must be gratifying for you to see Mad Planets receive the acclaim and attention it it, it now does that it probably did back in the day due to the limited number of cabinets that were produced. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I feel good for Khan. It's, a, you know, it's sort of a vindication of his design that so many people remember Mad Planets today, even though it didn't uh, sell as well. It didn't, I mean, you know, it, it was okay. I think it was respectable, but, it, you know, it wasn't a huge hit or anything. And just the fact that it has such staying power and people still remember it is a, is a testament to Khan. For this next clip from episode 14, Paul and I speak with artist Jeff Lee. Jeff was responsible for the vast majority of graphics across all of Gottlieb's titles and is perhaps most notable for designing Cuba himself. Let, let, let me tell you, I'm always, um, it's a little bit of an aside, but I'm always slightly weirded out by Cuba, and I'll tell you why. You, you mentioned that, you know, Cuba has feet to jump, sure. Mm -hmm. He has a long nose um, to fire projectiles. So he's almost kind of, but he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have any arms. He just has a pair of eyes to see, a pair of feet to jump and a, and a big snout with which to shoot people. So it's almost like he's kind of evolved to be that creature. And it, and it reminds me, and you're just going to have to take my word for it here. There's a public information film that aired during the mid eighties over here called The Perfect Smoker. And it was the freakiest thing I as a child had ever seen. And basically the perfect smoker was a creature, a human who had evolved uh, and his mouth was very, very small just to fit a cigarette and his nose was very, very long in order to expel the smoke. And I know that sounds completely crazy, but I just had to get the, get that out there. So I, I just, it, so I can, I can almost imagine, I know obviously Qbert's featured in Wreck-It Ralph as a character, but I have this weird vision of him in real life, but he still looks like that. Anyway, that aside, I, I just- I, I, I don't think we ever- depicted Qbert as a smoker though no 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 um, I'm, I'm sure I, I mean I mean because because there were in-house calendars and other drawings and you know I did a bunch of variants of Qbert like but you, ne you never stuffed a cigarette down his nose I, no I never had him as a smoker and I was a smoker at the time um but yeah no never occurred to me so. okay that's, that's good <laughs> that's good those um um those sketches had the character who you know who would become Cuba firing from the nose could that have worked because I know I know when Cuba was adapted to a, like a kids TV show they had him firing firing balls or projectiles from his nose did you did you ever have a build of the game when he was shooting things no no okay Warren had uh, you know like I said he had seen the uh, the triads and he had gone with the pyramid and then he made it a experiment and programming exercise of which way will the ball go right or left ah uh, sure you know? yeah yeah so you know on and off kind of programming thing going on and mm. he agreed there need to be someone jumping around but he did not take to the game proposal that i had put out there and never considered uh having him shoot i just i suppose the thing with cubert is that it has had this kind of afterlife 
from those early titles that introduced mm-hmm. him to uh, to the world. And I just wondered, you know, when you see him on T-shirts or, you know, on cuddly toys or even, you know, in the last few years on the big screen in films like Wreck-It Ralph and Pixels, I just wondered how you've felt. Do you, do you look and think, my boy done good? Yeah, I, I, I think we all feel that way. You know, uh, Warren does. Mm. Uh, David Thiel, who did, you know, the sounds, and which added so much to the character of a, mm-hmm. of a little sprite that's hopping around. <laughs> on a screen yeah. and you get the sounds really do so much for that game yeah. um and, and was a one of the best jokes in in uh, wreck it ralph when the uh felix is talking to Qbert and he <laughs> says he can speak Qbertese, you know that was uh <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was splendid so I, I i think we all get a charge out of that for episode 20 we spoke with matt householder jointly responsible for Gottlieb's underrated arcade adaptation of the oddball sci-fi fantasy movie, Krull. Did you have an opportunity to see rows and rows of Krull cabinets being built on the production line? I don't recall. Don't recall seeing them. I must have, but I mean, I, I like a two or 3,000 run, probably do that in a, in a month. I'm not sure how long mm-hmm. their production run was, or maybe they did several small runs. I'm not sure how it was done. Basically, at that point, I was looking to leave and wasn't really too involved in Gottlieb activities. And okay. I remember getting a Kroll. I, I got a set of the Kroll boards, which I still have, and a set of uh, comedy ROMs that uh, Chris Brewer put together. A replacement set of foreground sprites with some uh, differences that were poking fun at... Uh, at me or I, or whatever, I, I'm not quite sure who, but just a poking fun at the whole game. Oh, really? Yeah. Are, the, are these? Sorry, sorry to interject, Tony. Are these comedy roms, as you call them, Matt? Are they? Are they? Are, have you made these widely available, or do they remain? Oh no, I'm the only one that has a copy. Really? Yeah. Have I you backed the... them up? Have you? Have well, you... they're in the dark eproms down there. <laughs> Last time I looked at them, which was probably 20 years ago, they've still had something on them. But you've uncovered something here, boys. Yeah. Yeah, Chris Brewer was programmer on Mach 3 mm-hmm. and he was kind of a, a general do everything kind of guy but anyway, he was also an artist he as I discovered he he did this set of ROMs called crawl k-r-a-w-l and it changed the slayers into businessmen carrying briefcases kind of like uh Robotron. And I think we should put you in touch with somebody. Yeah. And the ar- army. Somebody's going to be interested in these. <laughs> the army of friends, your army, your army of friends was turned into Boy Scouts, and Princess Lissa's turned into a Coinot video game. So you, t- you, did- you didn't need to email each other. No, we didn't. Chat. No, there was no email, really. <laughs> right, okay. We um, called it Sneaker Net. <laughs> just. Very nice. Um, can I just ask what, what you know? This is the early days of um, you know coin op and game development. Now people are used to collaborating with a huge amount of people. But I mean, did you did you clash at all? I mean, was there a time well, when Chris um, Chris and I had d- different personalities? Uh, but you know, we're both very independent minded and kind of sarcastic, sardonic, whatever, you know, we, uh, and, uh, you know, we took one another, well, we'd like to joke together about certain things like, um, when we play video games, coin up games together, we would, you know, he, he had a certain, we had some funny catchphrases that he, well, ones that he mostly, he liked to use, like, uh, uh, if you did something stupid or good in a video game, well, 
Chris is watching, he might say, nice going, Hopeye. What? Hopeye. Okay. Yeah, and it was a joke about a game that from Japan that Chris and I saw at GDI, and it was being presented by a team from Japan, and, and uh, they showed it to us, and there was a reward scene in the game when you'd done something well, and it would pop up this word, these words that says, nice going, Hopeye. Okay, as opposed to Popeye. And Chris said, you this, mean yeah, Popeye, Jenglish right? is this, yeah. essentially. Well, well, yeah, and Chris pointed out, no, you mean Popeye, right? And it's like, oh no, Hopeye, Hopeye. Okay. Because, po right. well, because Popeye is a trademark that they didn't have the rights to. So they, but, and the H and the P look similar in, in Katakana, it, which is the Japanese Romaji representation. You just put a little circle to make an H into a P. Anyway, whatever. Chris was just kind of a cryptic comedian like that. And finally, from episode 17, a few clips from our conversation with David Thiel. David is known primarily these days for his pinball audio work on games such as Tron Legacy, Dialed In and Alien. But back in the day, as they say, he was the audio artist on all the early Gottlieb video classics, including Tim Skelly's Reactor. Uh, so David, uh, during your time at Gottlieb, um, you were fortunate enough to work alongside uh, the late, great Tim Skelly. I just, just just wondered if you could share some of your memories of Tim from that time. Oh, yeah. T Tim was... Tim was an amazing character. Keep in mind, he was the only one there who had ever made successful coin-operated games. Right. Uh, he'd done all those vector games for Cinematronics under the worst, though just in every way, lowest paid, working in San Diego in like an upstairs office at 110 degrees. I mean, it was just nuts. Uh, and he did some great work and they made a ton of money and they didn't give him any of it. So um, he escaped there and... Uh, Got, got this three or four game contract at Gottlieb. And uh, so I was talking to Tim. I He was an eccentric at that time. He was plagued by migraines. He was self-medicating for that. It was, it was challenging for him. And he sort of kept to himself. So he was a package, right? He designed the game, he programmed the game, and he did all the art. Games were small enough at that time where if you had someone like Tim, who was fundamentally an artist, who had learned programming, taught himself, he was... <laughs> the funniest story I have about that, uh, Tim was ex is an extremely clever guy, but he had his way. So he they gave him the blue box, the big Intel expensive uh, hardware emulator blue box from Intel to code the game on. And we only had two of these in shop. They were very much under contention, but Tim's was the first game. So he owned that machine and he was working on it. And uh, Tim, he, he taught himself programming and, and he was coding everything as one big Intel uh, ASM assembly language program. No submodules, no anything, just one big program. The problem with that was that this thing was based on eight inch floppies. So there was finite storage space on the blue box. And about, I don't know, 70% of the way into this project, uh, the blue box just gave up and said, well, there's no more space. I can't store your symbol tables. I can't, I can't, I can't go on. <laughs> <laughs> so Tim threw his hands up because had he written it in a more sophisticated way with submodules, then those things could have been loaded in one at a time, compiled, and then all linked together. But Tim didn't really have a command with the linker because the linker was like a new thing to him. So he ignored it. He just did the simplest thing he could with it. So the project just stopped. Um, management ran around for a week. And then they spent, I think it was 25 grand 
for the Intel hard drive, which at that time was like the size of a small refrigerator. <laughs> and it had a fixed platter and a, and a removable platter. And that gave him a total of 10 megabytes. <laughs> wow. Okay. This is 1981, 10 megabytes and for 25 grand. And then, you know, they plugged that in, he put his stuff on it and bang, he was, a, a, you know, a way to finish the game. I think a lot of us would be surprised because when we think of sound these days, you think of it being sampled or, or maybe back in the old days of folly effects that, you know, I had visions of you sort of punching a melon and going, right, that's a good, but, but you didn't do anything like that. Well, All of this was just you doing it in code then. Yeah, you're writing an algorithm that sounds like something. And that is, uh, you know, if you'd had 10 or 100 times more horsepower, you could have applied some legitimate digital signal processing techniques aping the way analog stuff works and you could have gone at it in a much much more direct way mm -hmm. but using this technique it's it wasn't a random walk but it was close to it i wrote an enormous amount of small loops and 70 percent of them ended up on the floor because they didn't sound like anything <laughs> You did come from a live music background. Mm -hmm. uh, I have had great fun watching, uh, I hope I pronounced this right, Chihuahua All-Stars, yep. the band you were in in the 70s. Uh, you, listeners, you can find them on YouTube. Big tunes, even bigger hair. Really good. I just want to know, is that your background playing uh, in kind of the Chicago bar scene in the 70s, did that help at all? when you came to make video game sounds and music in the 80s? Oh, I would think so, uh, because it's it's more fundamental than, than that. You know, at some point, all this technology, all these pixels, all this stuff is just about entertaining. And you, you have to, you know, it, it's a new kind of instrument, if you will. But, you know, my thing is having worked directly with the audience, for years, for seven years, I mean, I would show up at 9.30 at night and play an instrument for some number of people in a, in a bar somewhere. I'd do that for six hours. And you get a sense when it's working, when it's not working, what amuses people, what doesn't. So uh, understanding, you know, the contract for entertainment is here, give me your attention and I will make it worth your while. So yeah, having been an entertainer and the fact I played keyboards and I played rock and I played lounge bands and I played prod more times than I would like to think, um, <laughs> you know, really I think helped me when I went to approach the problem for the very first game. Like, what should I do for this? Who's my audience? And how can I, how can I tickle them? How can I capture their attention? How can I amuse them and entertain them? And I'm not sure every programmer or engineer that that's like high up in their agenda. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank you.